Is this how it's supposed to work? Can you all hear me? How about you children here up front? Can you all hear me? And by the way, that was so awesome to see all the moss children sing up here. Changed my heart, oh Lord. Yes, Lord, changed my heart. You guys did such an awesome job. Thank you so much. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? You may close your Bible. A young girl with Down syndrome flew from Atlanta, Georgia to Houston, Texas. She occupied the aisle seat on a plane that was configured to have the aisle seat in the middle with three seats on the left and three seats on the right. After a minute or so, another passenger took his seat by the window. Moments later, the little girl leaned over and asked her fellow passenger, Do you smoke? And the man turned to the girl and said, No, I don't smoke. That's good, said the girl, because smoking makes you dead. Another minute went by, and the little girl asked the man, Do you know Jesus? And the man turned to the little girl, and he smiled, and he said, Yes, I do. I am the the pastor of a Baptist church here in Atlanta. That's good, said the little girl. As more people boarded the plane, an elderly gentleman took the middle seat. After, after he was comfortably seated and buckled in, the little girl elbowed him and asked, Do you know Jesus? And the old man said, and he paused for a second, and he said, uh, No, not really, but I'm at an age where I need to know him. Uh, I, to make a long story short, Before that plane landed in Houston, Texas, that old man had given his heart to Jesus, acknowledged that he was a sinner, and and asked Jesus to come and live in his heart. That sweet little girl with Down syndrome was God's missionary. John Kevill, an Anglican pastor in the Church of England, who lived from 1792 to 1866, said the following, The salvation of one soul is worth more than the framing of a Magna Carta for a thousand worlds. I'll say it again. The salvation of one soul is worth more than the framing of the Magna Carta for a thousand worlds. I suppose for an Englishman, 
The Magna Carta is as important as the Declaration of Independence is for an American. We know the Bible well enough that those who are not saved eventually end up in a dreadful place of eternal torment, a fiery lake of burning sulfur, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm will not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Many years ago when I was a baby Christian, I mistakenly used to think that my God was the same as God's, or deities from other world religions. I quickly tossed that idea out of the window early one morning during my prayer and Bible study time while living in Miami, Florida. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 came alive. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which he must be saved. Permit me to say it again. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. The obvious name in question is that of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. If the effects were profound when I read the scripture the first time, reading it a second time caused me to almost panic. But Lord, I said, what about the Muslims? What about the Buddhists? What about the Hindus and all the others? Again, my eyes fell on the scripture before me. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? When we think of missionaries, we usually think of people who have traveled to distant lands to share the gospel message with those who do not know Christ. And that is true. However, we need not have to be sent to the foreign mission field to be a missionary. One can be a missionary by standing on the street corner in anywhere USA and tell people of the love of God through Jesus Christ. And you, yes, you can do that, even in a place like Crew, Virginia. Being a missionary or a Christian missionary does not necessarily mean someone who one day decides to abruptly quit his or her job pack his or her suitcase, move and proclaim the gospel in the deep, dark jungles of Africa or South America. Although it may very well happen. Today there are Christians from Christian missionaries from Africa sharing the gospel message in other parts of the world. Think of college students who spent their summer vacations teaching English in a foreign country and taking opportunities to share Jesus with people of the host nation. Or a Christian American family befriends and, and hosts a foreign exchange student and shares with that young person the love of Christ. 
You may have even seen an 18-wheeler on the interstate from the Christian Broadcasting Network with the big logo on there, Operation Blessing. Or you may have seen a, a, a truck on the highway with a brief gospel message on the back of the truck. All these people are missionaries. And in a sense, we're all, we're all called to be missionaries. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. This command didn't stop but the twelve disciples. No, we are to testify by taking every opportunity to tell people how much Jesus loves them and how to receive the gift of eternal life. So what is a missionary? Simply this, a missionary is commissioned by God, by the Lord, to make disciples, that is, followers of Christ. Jesus commands all Christians to share the gospel message of his death and resurrection that conquered the penalty and power of sin. Matthew 28, and I'll read it for you. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We know the scripture as the Great Commission. The gospel is to be preached to every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. As I pondered this message, I started thinking of the lives of great missionaries in the history of the church. Obviously, there are so many, too numerous to mention here, but I'd like to share with you a few who have greatly influenced my Christian walk. David Brainerd was born on April 20, 1718, in Haddam, Connecticut. As a young man, he viewed himself as a pretty good fellow. But after a time of, and I'll quote him, distressed, bewildered, and tumultuous state of mind and rebellion against God's law and sovereignty, Brainerd invited Jesus into his heart. He was 20 years old at the time. And this is what he writes about the event. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellence, loveliness, and greatness of God that I had no thought at first about my own salvation. In September 1739, David Brainerd entered Yale College, now Yale University, to prepare for the ministry. Sometime during his second year at Yale, he was expelled for having criticized a college professor and a rector for their opposition to revival. In the spring of 1742, Brainerd was overwhelmed with the strong desire that God use him in the work of the mission to the heathen. His missionary commitment is expressed in his own words. Here I am, Lord, sent me, sent me to the ends of the earth, sent me to the rough, the savage pagans of the, of the wilderness, sent me from all that is comfort on earth, sent me even to death itself, if it be in thy service and to promote thy kingdom. 
David Brainerd was licensed to preach in 1742 and became a missionary to the Mahican Indians in Western Massachusetts. After 12 long months of grueling ministry in the most distant edge of civilized America, Brainerd changed direction to serve the Indians at the Forks of the Delaware, which is located in Pennsylvania. He struggled greatly to understand the language of the Native Americans. In the depths of this forest alone, he literally spent whole days in prayer. What was he praying for? He knew that he could not reach these people. He did not understand their language. If he wanted to speak at all, he must find somebody who would vaguely interpret his thoughts. Therefore, he knew that anything he could do must be absolutely dependent upon the power of God. Brainerd spent day after day in prayer, simply that the power of the Holy Spirit might come upon him so unmistakably that these people should not be able to stand before him. And what was his answer? Once he preached through a drunken interpreter, a man so intoxicated that he could hardly stand up. That was the best he could do. Yet a great number were converted through that one sermon. Because of ill health, coupled with hardship upon hardship, David Brainerd spent no more than five years on the mission field. The Lord took him home at the age of 29 in the year 1747. William Carey, great missionary, read of his life and was so moved by it that he went to India. And so did Henry Martin, another great name in church history. Many others have great, been greatly influenced by David Brainerd, and I'll only mention a few. Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, John Newton, and Robert Murray McShane. John Piper wrote the following about Brainerd. I thank God for the ministry of David Brainerd in my own life. The passion for prayer, the spiritual feast of fasting, the sweetness of the word of God, the unremitting perseverance through hardship, the relentless focus on the glory of God, the utter dependence on grace, the final resting in the righteousness of Christ, the pursuit of perishing sinners, the holiness while suffering, the fixing of the mind on what is eternal and finishing well without cursing the disease that cut him down at the age of 29. William Carey was a British missionary who lived from 1761 to 1834. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, young William Carey, a newly ordained minister, stood up to argue the importance of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, <laughs> he'll do it without consulting you or me. William Carey was an incredibly amazing man. He translated the entire Bible into six languages. At the age of 12, he taught himself Latin, and later on his own, he mastered Greek, Hebrew, French, and Dutch. 
Throughout his lifetime, he learned dozens of foreign languages. The amazing thing about William Carey is that he never enjoyed a high school or college education. William Carey was a missionary to India. He labored long and hard seven years before he had, for seven years before he had his first convert to Christianity. And that was in the year 1800. With the help of his friends, he translated the entire Bible into six major Indian languages and parts of the Bible into 209 other languages and dialects. This project took him 28 years. He owned and operated his own printing press. After having translated the Bible in one of the Indian languages and ready to go to print, the entire printing facility went up in smoke. But Carey was not discouraged. William Carey is known as the father of modern Protestant missions. Great missionaries like Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, and David Livingstone, among thousands of others, were impressed not only by Carey's example, but by his favorite quote, Expect great things, <coughs> attempt great things for God. William Carey was singularly responsible for having changed the law in India that permitted child sacrifice. By the time he died at the age of 73, he had spent 41 years on the foreign mission field in India without so much as taking one day vacation. <clears throat> James Hudson Taylor, another great man, great missionary, a British missionary who lived from 1832 to 1905. At the time of his birth, his parents prayed that he would one day become a missionary to China. Years later, teenage Hudson Taylor experienced a new birth as he lay prostrate before the Lord with unspeakable awe and unspeakable joy. He spent the next several years studying medicine and Mandarin, the native language of China. In addition to immersing himself into deeper Bible study and prayer. When he arrived in Shanghai, China in 1853, at the age of 21, he made a radical decision. He decided to dress like Chinese men and grow a pigtail. I am certain that many Protestant members of the clergy at the time would have balked at the idea of men growing a pigtail. Hudson Taylor was driven to take the gospel to the interior of China, distributing Bible and gospel tracts to the Chinese people. Taylor arrived in China under the auspices of the Chinese Evangelization Society in London, England. When that organization was unable to pay salaries to all their missionaries, Hudson Taylor decided to go at it alone, trusting the Lord for all his needs. In addition to his missionary duties, he pastored a small church that grew to 21 members. In 1861, he became seriously ill and was forced to return to England. And while recovering at home, he continued to translate the Bible in Chinese and recruit more missionaries. He was troubled that the church in England had little interest in China. In one article, he wrote, Can all Christians in England sit still with folded arms while these multitudes in China are perishing, perishing for a lack of knowledge, 
a knowledge which England possesses so richly. He became the founder of the China Inland Mission. After recovery from his illness, Hudson Taylor returned to China, where he also served as a medical missionary. To work for the China Inland Mission, there would be no guarantee of a salary, nor were missionaries permitted to solicit funds for their financial support. They would simply trust the Lord for their needs. Moreover, missionaries were all required to wear the Chinese dress. Hudson Taylor pushed himself to the limit. He saw more than 200 patients every day when he returned to China. In spite of opposition, he sent unmarried women missionaries into the interior of China. In 1881, he asked God God to send him 70 more missionaries. Three years later, 76 were added to the the China Inland Mission. In late 1886, he asked for 100 more. One year later, 102 missionaries were added and accepted for service. Hudson Taylor suffered from poor health, including depression. Yet, in spite of these mental and physical challenges, he did not slow down. He traveled to the United States and England and Canada on speaking engagements. He suffered a mental and physical breakdown in the year 1900. His wife Maria had died at the age of 33. Four of their eight children died before the age of 10. Hudson Taylor had his house burnt down, lost all his possessions. He was shot at and chased after by bandits, but he refused to give up. He inspired thousands to leave behind a life of comfort and bring the gospel to the interior of China. Much can be said about Hudson Taylor. The China Inland Mission continues to thrive to this day under the name Overseas Missionary Fellowship International. One young man who has deeply touched my heart, and one of the first I like to meet when I get to heaven, is William Weising Borden. One Sunday morning at the Moody Church in Chicago, uh, R.A. Torrey, the pastor, challenged believers in his church to surrender their lives in total consecration to Jesus Christ. Many stood to their feet. Among them was a seven-year-old boy wearing a sailor suit. His name was William Borden. No doubt some of the adults there uh, smiled at him. But the boy was deadly serious. In fact, that step of dedication of faith controlled his life until 18 short years later when the Lord took him home and he was preparing to be a missionary in China. William was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and blue blood flowing through his veins. Some of you, I'm sure Jack and my friend over here, remember the Borden commercials on television during the 60s. Borden was a big company back in those days. He grew up in Chicago, but graduated from high school in Pennsylvania at the age of 16. The fact that William was the son of a millionaire made no difference to him. He never tried to impress anyone. He was a humble young man with a heart dedicated to serve the Lord. Since he was too young to enter college, his parents sent him on a trip around the world accompanied by Walter Erdman, a graduate of Princeton University and Seminary. 
They sailed from San Francisco to the Far East. On board were a number of missionaries. Meeting these missionaries and listening to their stories only strengthened his resolve to become a missionary. He was moved by what he saw in Japan and in China and was impressed by the work of the China Inland Mission. He wrote to his mother that God will take his life and use it for the furtherance of his kingdom as he sees fit and added, I have so much of everything in this life and there are so many millions who have nothing and who live in darkness. William and his companion attended several meetings in London, England, where his former pastor, R.A. Torrey, was now speaking. At one of the meetings, William stood up again to affirm his commitment he had made to Christ more than ten years earlier. This new step of dedication only served to give him a greater burden for the lost. William Borden entered the freshman class at Yale University in 1905 and discovered that despite the school's historic Christian foundation, there was a lack of spiritual life on campus. The great majority of students smoke, go to the theater on Saturday, and do their homework on Sunday, he wrote to his family, and added, rather a hopeless state of affairs. However, there are some fine Christian men in college and in my own class too. He refused to join a fraternity or secret society at the university and boldly witnessed for Christ. William became burdened for the poor and needy people of the seaport town of New Haven, where Yale is located. The result was, if, was the founding of the Yale Hope Mission, where William often went to witness for Christ and help those whose life had been battered by sin. Dr. Henry Frost, a Canadian representative of the China Inland Mission, was once asked the question by a visitor, Sir, what has impressed you the most since you came to America? Dr. Frost replied, The sight of that young millionaire kneeling with his arm around a bum in the Yale Hope Mission. At a conference in Nashville, William learned that there were 15 million Muslims in China without one single missionary. At the Edinburgh Missionary Conference in England, William stated publicly of his intentions to minister to the Muslims in northwest China. He graduated from Yale in 1909 and that same year entered Princeton Seminary. He graduated, I'm sorry, Borden was made a trustee of the Moody Bible Institute and the following year was made a member of the North American Council of the China Inland Mission. While a student at the seminary, he taught a Sunday school class at an African Methodist Episcopal, Episcopal Church and gave away $70,000 to various Christian ministries. I am sure $70,000 a hundred years ago is worth probably a million dollars today. When, he, when William graduated from seminary and on September the 9th of that year was ordained at the Moody Church, the newspapers gave great publicity to this, to this event and found it strange that this young millionaire would devote himself entirely to a life as a missionary in China. Before his departure overseas, he spent three months on a speaking tour at various colleges and universities, promoting the cost of world missions. On December 17, 1912, William sailed to Cairo, Egypt, where he planned to study the Muslim religion and culture. 
Only four months later, he was diagnosed with cerebral meningitis and died on April 9 of that year. The news of his death spread around the world. With memorial services held at many churches and schools. In his will, Borden left all his fortune to various Christian missionaries. In his life and death, he left us an example of true devotion to Christ and to the things that matter most in life. William Whiting Borden never got to minister to the Muslim people in China, but God knew the intent of his heart and awarded him accordingly. Borden's desire was to magnify Christ, whether it be by life or by death, and God gave him his desire. One lesson is clear. Never underestimate the decision made by a child or a young man or a young woman or a young girl. At the age of seven, Borden consecrated himself to Christ. When a freshman at Yale, he wrote in his notebook, Lord Jesus, I take hands off as far as my life is concerned. I put thee on the throne of my heart. Change, cleanse, Use me as thou shalt choose. I take the full power of thy Holy Spirit. I thank thee. William Borden is buried at the American Cemetery in Cairo, Egypt. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? We have in our midst quite a number of missionaries. And uh, I would take great delight in naming everyone who is even remotely connected with these ministries. To do so would require you to miss your lunch and stay here for the rest of the afternoon. I don't think you would like that. You may never even speak to me again. And so I'll only mention the names of those who are in leadership positions. We all know Jeff and Cookie Liverman who serve almost all of their adult lives as missionaries, 15 years of which on the foreign mission field, under the auspices of Frontier, a missions organization with the goal of sharing the gospel message with Muslims around the world. Bobby Hill served as a missionary and English teacher in Mishinomiya. I spent the whole week trying to pronounce this name here. Uh, in Japan from 1977 to 2004. After seven years, he came home with a beautiful Japanese bride, Shoko, and two handsome young sons, Noah and Joshua, sitting back there somewhere. Each year, we send a team of missionaries to Guatemala, headed by Dr. John, Dr. John and Barbara Wine. In addition to sharing the gospel, their mission is to care for the sick, conduct Bible studies, witnessing, women's ministries, sports activities, arts and crafts, and a host of other biblically-based activities. Did you know that God can use a horse to bring people to Christ? Did you also know that God can use a horse to bring healing to a person who suffers from physical, emotional, and other related type of afflictions to include neglect? This is what happens at Glory Range Range under the leadership of Kevin and Robin Warren. Weekday Religious Education is a Christian-based, non-profit, non-denominational program conducted by 
uh, Betty and Dana Wood. David, Dana is joining us today. Uh, who shared the good news with children in Nottoway County who otherwise might never hear or be exposed to the gospel. A note of interest, Dr. John, John Wine's father, Floyd Wine, was one of the founding members of weekday religious education in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I know Rick Dunn to be very active in the Gideons, a Christian organization dedicated to distribute Bibles around the world. I remember Scotty Loke and a group of people from NCF handing out gospel tracts and on college campuses and witnessing. Uh, many years ago, I remember a team from NCF traveling to Romania, spearheaded by Sharon Schofield, a former member of NCF. Among the many members on that team was Mary Lou Kirkendall, Corky Abernathy, and Katie Abernathy Gillen. In addition to these ministries, NCF supports several missionaries, many of whom have spoken here from this pulpit. Helmut Lozer serves as the chair of our NCF Missions Committee. To each and every one of you, those whose names I have mentioned, to include those names who I have not mentioned, and you know who you are, thank you for your service, your dedication, hard work, and sacrifices for the Lord. In his covenant with Abraham, God promises to bless all peoples on earth. Genesis 12, verse 3. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. In affirming that covenant with Isaac and Jacob, he promises again to bless all peoples on earth. Genesis 26, 4 and 28, 14. He gives Solomon wisdom so that all nations might hear of the wisdom of God. 1st King chapter 4 verse 34. His grace to Israel is for all nations salvation. Psalm 67 verse 2. He blesses Israel's king for the sake of all nations. Psalm 72 verse 11 and 17. God desires praise from all nations. Psalm 148 7 through 11. His temple is established for the sake of all nations. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, and Jeremiah 3.17. Jesus tells his disciples to go into all nations, Matthew 28.19. In the end, God will gather to himself a people of all nations, Isaiah 66.18, and Revelation 7, verse 9. Jesus confirms that the Holy Spirit pursues those who do not know him. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify. For you have been with me from the beginning. John chapter 15, verses 26 to 27. If the Holy Spirit testifies and comes to live in us, then we too will testify. If we have a missionary God, residing in our hearts, then they will be missionary hearts. David says in Psalm 23 that the Lord is his shepherd. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. And in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us that the shepherd is zealously focused on restoring lost sheep. The implication of this for our understanding of God are clear. He is a seeking God. If we want to know what his priorities in this world are, we need to look no further than here. 
he tells us he is passionate about pursuing lost sheep. He will gladly leave the 99 in their comfort and safety in order to track down a single misguided sheep. All heaven rejoices when that one sheep is found. Luke chapter 15, verse 7 and 10. As co-laborers with God, we are also to be seeking on his behalf. He is a missionary God who sent his missionary son into the world, and he calls us to have a missionary mind. If we are to be like him, we too must have a consuming, searching passion for the for lost sheep. Do we want to align ourselves with God's plan? Then we must be single-mindedly pray for those who are lost. We must work to find them and to bring them into the good shepherd's fold. We must give our resources to this end. We must behave like a shepherd who is not content with a 99% success rate. God does not rest as long as there are lost sheep. And neither must we. Today there are more than 4 billion sheep outside the shepherd's fold. And you don't have to go far to find them. If we want to be in tune with God's priorities, we must pray Give, train, tell, send, go, and never rest as long as sheep are outside the fold. Sharing the gospel message is not always an easy task. Sharing your faith with someone is not always easy. It can be very intimidating. People will scoff at you. There will be rejection. People may even get angry with you or become belligerent. But you need not fear. <clears throat> never will I leave you, never will I abandon you, says the Lord God Almighty in Hebrews chapter five, verse chapter thirteen, verse five. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? I like to close with the words of a hymn written by Margaret Clarkson, a Canadian missionary titled, So Sent I You. So sent I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So sent I you to toil for me alone. So sent I you to bind the bruised and broken over wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake. To bear the burden of a world of weary, so sent are you to suffer for my sake. So sent are you to loneliness and longing, with the heart hungering for the love and known. Forsaking home and kindred, friends and dear one, so sent are you to know my love alone. So sent are you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long, and love where men revalue, so sent are you to lose your life in mine. So sent are you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend though it be blood, and spare not, so sent are you to taste of Calvary. Since the birth of the church, 2,000 years ago, the church has been engaged in mortal combat 
for the souls of men and women. And this, dear brothers and dear sisters and dear young brothers and dear young sisters, concludes my message. May the Lord richly bless you and may the Lord bless the preaching of his word. To God be the glory, great things he had done. Thank you.